This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 19th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The 1619 Project has galvanized both sides of fights over how public schooling ought to treat the issue of slavery. This school year will be no different. I spoke in June with researcher Phil Magnus with the American Institute for Economic Research. He argues the good and bad of the 1619 Project ought to be taken seriously. The 1619 Project has become like a bit of a cause celeb in terms of uh, people trying to understand better our uh, American history and trying to, uh, I guess, reshape the view of like when America began. Right. 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 So uh, to to that extent, what's the best thing you can say about the 1619 Project? Well, I think the 1619 Project, uh, at least on paper, it began with an admirable goal, and that goal was to draw attention to the complexities of slavery. Uh, You know, the typical K-12 through education of slavery uh, discusses it in the context of the Civil War, and it's like, then the Civil War happened, then the slaves were free, and uh, end of story. Uh, That is, uh, you know, a really watered-down version of what happened, uh, it also kind of neglects the, the the fact that this institution had existed not only since the founding of the country in 1776, but goes all the way back over a century earlier into colonial times. Uh, so drawing attention to that uh, deeper part of the history, uh, I think at least on the surface, is an admirable uh, characteristic. The question, though, is the 1619 Project not only uh, states that as an objective, it also tries to insert modern politics into the way that it approaches tackling that question. Okay, so what's the worst thing you can say? About <laughs> oh, I think there are many. Um, uh, I would say the greatest weakness of it, uh, and this is the area where I first jumped into the debate on the 1619 Project, is its handling of the economic dimensions of slavery. Uh, it draws on a very narrow and heavily ideological uh, segment of the academic literature on slavery's uh, economic dynamics. And this is uh, it's referred to as the new history of capitalism school, really kind of burst onto the scenes in the early 2010s. And it's a small insular echo chamber of historians who are ideologically wedded to the idea that free market capitalism and slavery are uh, kind of like tied together at the hip. Uh, emerged simultaneously and that uh, wealth and prosperity in the the modern society that we all enjoy is basically built on the back of the slaves. So what should we understand when people who are advocates of uh, this project or advocates of the idea that uh, modern capitalism simply is not possible without this, you know, mass of slaves uh, operating throughout the United States. Yeah. So there are two problems here. The first is this academic literature, the new history of capitalism, has been torn to shreds by empirical economists who have studied this issue, uh, studied it in much greater depth than uh, this group of historians that have really dug in. And what it comes down to is uh, a, a very weird mixture of um, ideology being pushed to the forefront of what they're arguing And then also, I would argue, um, um, outright academic incompetence. Uh, I mean, these are people that don't understand basic statistics. Uh, So one of the more uh, infamous claims in the new history of capitalism literature uh, was put forth by a historian by the name of Ed Baptist, who's very prominent in the 1619 Project uh, source material. And what Baptist claimed is he purported to calculate slavery's share of American GDP before the Civil War. 
And through uh, some, I, I call it really magical math, he comes to the conclusion that slavery accounted for a full half of the American economy before the Civil War. Uh, this came from double and triple and quadruple counting components of the American economy. Uh, any economic historian who's uh, worth his or her salt who studied this issue uh, finds that cotton production uh, was roughly 5 to 6% of GDP, not 50% of GDP before the American Civil War. Uh, so that's a very, very different empirical picture than what someone like Ed Baptist is claiming. And I think, unfortunately, uh, Baptist's uh, statistics and similar claims in that vein have really been pushed to the forefront. Uh, so one of the arguments I've made is that the new history of capitalism has inadvertently rehabilitated the old King Cotton school of economic theory that existed in the American South prior to the Civil War. And this is the notion that cotton was such an essential component of not only the American, but the world economy, that none would ever, ever dare to make war upon it. No one would ever uh, uh, consider questioning the system of production that cotton was based upon. And we know the Confederacy built its entire foreign policy and economic strategy around this doctrine. Uh, their idea was that, uh, uh, you know, we can use cotton to lure England and France, all the major European powers, into our side of the Civil War for what happened in reality. It turned out that they had uh, uh, embraced a myth. They had embraced an economic thesis that was not rooted in reality. And during the American Civil War, not only do England and France not come to the Confederacy's aid, it's northern industry separated and apart from uh, this cotton system that they thought was the centerpiece of the American economy. Northern industry just overwhelms the South. Uh, it's, it's one of the most uh, one-sided conflicts in, in history in that sense. So you, you make that statement about the South embracing a myth, and it reminds me of a lot of communist countries that don't really understand the degree to which uh, because the numbers are are fraudulent in so many so many ways, right? They don't really know what their what the truth of the matter is. Yeah, it's a, a combination of bad statistics overlaid with bad history, overlaid with ideology, and uh, and also done in an echo chamber. So some of the uh, economic historians that have scrutinized this, one thing that they all point out is this new history of capitalism literature seems to be oblivious to the previous 50 or 60 years worth of ac academic work uh, rigorously investigating how plantation economies worked. What about the, the claim that I have heard uh, from a number of sources, the idea that individual plantation owners uh, may have become more wealthy but the South as a whole was becoming less wealthy. Well, I think that's absolutely the case. So uh, slavery uh, does heighten inequality to extreme proportions. Uh, and slavery, you know, as an economic system, it can be very profitable, uh, very profitable for a small number of people. And those are the people at the top, the giant plantations uh, that exist with uh, thousands of people enslaved on them and a single very wealthy family at the top of the food chain, effectively. Uh, and that often, as we see in history, uh, the slave owners themselves are also the political class of those states. And one of the observations that was made before the Civil War, so there are several uh, travelers that come from the northern states and they tour the American South. Uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, so the uh, the designer of Central Park in New York City, uh, is one and of these. And all of Louisville's park. And all of, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's one of, one of the, uh, the, the major intellectual figures of the late 19th century, but he famously writes a book when he tours the South in the 1850s, and he looks around, and, and his observation is that uh, he sees abject poverty for the masses, 
not only so slaves are obviously in in extreme poverty and extremely poor conditions, but he also sees white uh, farmers are in extreme poverty. And then there's a very small, concentrated uh, cultural and political elite of the ultra-wealthy slave owners at the top. Uh, and it's almost like a feudal economy. It's a throwback to a feudal system, not a, uh, a vibrant modern capitalism. Uh, so many of the critics of slavery before the Civil War, they point to free labor as the uh, the competitor, as the alternative to this system. And the other point they look at is uh, where are the immigrant uh, populations coming to the United States from? There's a mass wave of immigration after the Irish famine. Uh, European populations are, are coming into New York City. Where are they settling? It's all north of the Ohio River. It's the free states. Why? They're voting with their feet because that's where the economic activity is. Uh, that's where you can get a job. If you move to the South, uh, you're in a much uh, weaker position. Many schools systems have embraced the, the 1619 project. And I, you know, I have a hard time saying that that is uh, a bad idea if it is balanced against something else. Right. Uh, right. But it, it doesn't seem to be that it doesn't that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. So I've always uh, argued in favor of teaching the controversy around something like the 1619 project uh, because it does raise interesting questions. I think it has uh, answers that are overly ideological. And again, as I've said, I think the economics is abysmal in this and there's some other faults in it. But if schools were actually teaching the controversy of presenting both the 1619 Project and some of the criticisms of the 1619 Project side by side, I think that's a valuable education exercise. Uh, that's not what the New York Times wants. And you can see this through the way that Nicole Hannah-Jones and some of the other writers that have been affiliated with it have responded to their critics. Uh, they are not interested in honest intellectual engagement in areas where uh, they have erred or where they have overstated some of their claims. Uh, in fact, we saw this early on. So some of the first critics of uh, the interpretation of the American Revolution that came out of the 1619 Project were very prominent, well-regarded historians like Gordon Wood and James M. McPherson, James Oakes, Victoria Bynum, Sean Malintz. Uh, these are all center-left historians that said, wait a minute, you're overstating this claim about slavery's role in the American Revolution. We need to walk it back and look at the evidence. And Nicole Hannah-Jones is uh, uh, response to these, well, these are a bunch of white historians. Uh, they don't know uh, the history, uh, and I don't consider them prominent. So uh, it's just basically to brush them aside. And that really played out in a, a very public way up until um, another historian, uh, Leslie M. Harris from Northwestern University, uh, basically revealed in Politico that she had been asked to consult as a fact checker by the New York Times prior to this coming out in publication. And she warned Nicole Hannah-Jones against overstating the claim about slavery's connection to the American Revolution, said, you know, this is not academically sound. Uh, you need to relax this claim and put proper nuance and caveats on it. And she basically broke her silence and, and revealed that the New York Times had just ignored her uh, as a, a historian, as an expert, as their own consultant fact checker. And we've just seen that pattern play out over and over and over again every time that there's an error or a fault uh, pointed out in the 1619 Project. Uh, so it's kind of like a, a, a my way or the highway type of a uh, uh, an approach that they've set themselves up uh, for in the classroom. Phil Magnus directs research and education at the American Institute for Economic Research. We spoke in June. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 